Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. I feel like I'm a little behind this week. Um, you know, we've got this alcohol um, bill. The alcohol bill, yeah. Um, it finally passed uh, for, for the third time. <laughs> So, yeah, give, let's uh, can you give me a quick little history of that? Yeah, so it's kind of I mean, it's honestly sort of one of these like the the purest version of like the sausage making, I feel like. So this is a bill um, carried by represent or sorry, excuse me, Senator Senate President Peter Machicki since 2015. And it's basically the whole idea behind it is like Alaska's alcohol laws are this like hodgepodge of rules and regulations of, of sort of amassed over the last like several decades that are impossible to follow and impossible to really enforce and it's trying to bring together like a bunch of competing interests and so invariably the legislative process you know some legislative interest which would typically be char which is the hospitality and bar and restaurant organization uh you know doesn't like it and then so they have pretty effectively just like spiked it at the end of every process and it's really it's kind of this interesting thing too because it emerges from the senate usually relatively clean the issue is that the house actually has like several um people who are formerly like in the bar industry too so they have like little changes that they would like to make so talking about um adam wool who used to own um the blue loon and house speaker louis stutes who was also a bar owner at one point and uh so it's just kind of this interesting bill um this one the really the 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 main idea and i've I've reported on it this is like a thing that i've reported on maybe like second to redistricting in number of stories i've written about it uh is that it's like trying to make the law easier to understand and, and therefore easier to follow and therefore easier to enforce what does this effectively do it kind of, it's sort of actually hard to really say unless you are a person who is actively in the bar industry. What does it mean for me as a patron? Well, do you like tasting rooms? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so my, my experience with this uh, is a little bit peripheral. Um, I know that there are a lot of it. There was sort of this battle between bars and tasting rooms, um, at least locally here in Juneau. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was op-eds and people in the bar industry were not happy about people in the taste room, you know, because these, these distilleries popped up and they're wildly successful. And the bars were like worried that they were cutting into their business and they were going to... Yeah, they're a much lower bar of entry right now because there's not... That, but, you know, the problem in but the they're re- more industries... restricted, right? Like they had... Yes. Like their hours are like much tighter and... They... And so, you know, it ends up in a place where, you know, most of the liquor licenses for bars are already been issued for a community so there's a limited number of them so you know getting a liquor license for a bar can cost you like a quarter million dollars right now whereas getting into a community with I a think tasting room it's important to note there when you say a liquor license can cost a quarter million dollars that's not what the government charges you right no no that's it's like with the, to buy the other person's liquor license yeah and i and i don't know if you want to get into this but for me like that that sort of regulatory capture is one of the things about this bill that makes me most uncomfortable is that there's, you know, in compromising, in deciding how this bill works, one of the things they've put into it is that there can only be so many more distilleries opened. And it really closes down opportunity for like the next generation of, pe- of business owners that want to come in and, and participate in this industry just in this. And they're going to have the same problem that you have now with these liquor licenses where, you know, the, the, 
The problem isn't that it's hard to open a bar. The problem is that you have to buy a $250,000 liquor license. And you've got this in industries like fishing where, you know, you've got mm-hmm. to try and get your, your, uh, you know, you've got to go buy out someone for a bazillion dollars if you want to be, if you want to be in, enter into certain fisheries. And it's that, that kind of thing feels really problematic as a way to govern It's like a first come first serve. You're, you, <laughs> you're lucky no one else is like, it's pulling up the ladder and it's really disappointing to me to see that as part of this bill. Yeah. I mean, and 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 in return, they get uh, two more hours to operate, so they get to close at 10 p.m. versus 8 p.m. And that's sort of the, the the main sort of concession to them. I think it is interesting because it is like, you know, on the one hand, it is you know this whole idea about the free market, right? The free market's supposed to understand and sort of do all this stuff, but then we get protective about it and close off the doors. We limit the number of participants in the free market. Right. And it's sort of like the sort of, you know, runs contrary to some of those ideas. And I think it like on some hand, it makes sense. You know, these are investments that you want to protect, but then you like, is it the government's role to defend your investment from, you know, keep maintain its value. I think that's like a really, weird place to be in right? I, I think you can look at the absurdity of it if you you know if you look at my own business if you're like oh pat owns a comic book store what if he went up and lobbied the legislature and said that like there could only be <laughs> there could only be one comic book store in juno and by the way he already has it and now anyone yeah. else that wants to open a comic book store because he's already i've already invested so much money in my business i should be insured this ability to sell my business for a bazillion dollars when i you know like it's a weird it's a weird thing it's almost like the government isn't quite there for like equal opportunity and equitability uh with everything it's almost like it's you know there to maintain the status quo you know is there like kind of issues we're talking about with everything right or to protect those people who have the the money to buy a lobbyist right i mean so yeah you talk about char the reason they're able to wield power is that they have you know a, an organized lobbying effort and you know i think that was one of the things that the distillery struggled with early on is that they were sort of this like ragtag group of you know upstart business owners that were coming into a pretty well staked out territory where it's like you know, you, yeah. you get a politician elected, and you all of a sudden they owe you some favors, and now they're you know it 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 that it's it got really weird with the distilleries where they were like, okay, you can't have a first Friday art show in your distillery because that you know violates the law. You can't serve your your mix. You can't pour the orange juice into the drink for the. <sighs> For the customer, because that's... Oh, I remember those days, yeah. The government should be there to, to bring more equity. And when you start using the government for this, like, regulatory capture to sort of, like, block out competitors, when you use it as kind of a bludgeon or a shield for your own business, I think that's, like, really unfortunate. I mean, I think, too, it, like, is it's frustrating, too, because the, you know, as a consumer, the experience of tasting rooms was, like, far superior to bars. In my <laughs> opinion, it was, they were... They were they were you know quieter, less crowded. Uh, typically, the drinks were better. Um, the the sort of atmosphere was more relaxed, you know. And so you know, it's almost it was like as if the 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 bars were sort of entering a situation and saying, well, we don't want to adapt to the changing market, so therefore you know, we need some rules to protect us. And it's like. You know, maybe if you're looking at the bar that, you know, at the at the um, distillery that's closing at eight, whatever, and but it's still drawing a lot of people like maybe you should be looking at that and saying, oh, maybe there's something about the, that formula that's worth 
you know, looking at. And so, it, you know, in, in some level, it like, you know, kind of squashes the need to innovate with it. And like, I, I get it. I get that, you know, these liquor licenses are expensive, right? That putting a quarter million dollars in it is like a lot of resources but or whatever. But again, artificially <clears throat> inflated. Artificially inflated. Like that's just, yeah, it's, it's a, like almost the answer would be is it would be like to open it up again and say like fine we'll buy out your liquor licenses right you'll get the value that you put into them back and then we'll go forward in a situation where the free market can decide it you know moving forward but that's kind of that is actually part of the issue is that i think there are a lot of bar owners that look at the situation and say it doesn't work all that well but i already am you know i've right. already sunk a half million dollars into it yeah. i don't want to don't want to lose that so yeah and so to deescalate that is difficult for the state like does the state you know like you said we don't have a ton of money right now does the state buy out bar owners and you know when a bar closes that license should probably revert to the state it shouldn't be up to the bar owner to decide who becomes the next bar owner that's a really weird thing we entered into this conversation here uh, almost joking about it, but it's actually it, it's a really good microcosm for like the bigger issue with government, right? With yeah, with this I idea mean, oil taxes of and all kinds of protecting stuff. and maintaining wealth, existing wealth, and and you know you look at you know some of the really key you know the clear indicators of you know financial success of an individual is so frequently the status of their their family, right? You know, if you are more likely to be wealthy if your parents are wealthy. You know, there are ways to break through that, but it's not, it's usually more the exception than the rule. So this really, like the whole, this whole conversation, we're going to talk about um, the late Senator Johnny Ellis a little later in the podcast, but I think he actually uh, is really good to bring up here. So Johnny Ellis, um, he passed away this week. He was in the legislature for a really long time, touched a lot of lives. And he had a quote that I think is really important that I, I sort of stumbled across while looking for pictures of him and looking through the Senate Minorities uh, Facebook page. And it is, quote, I will always keep in mind and heart that I was there in the legislature to stand up and represent people in my district who cannot afford to hire a lobbyist. Yeah. And I think that, like, to me, like, speaks to, like, his, not only his, 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 ability as a legislator and as a policymaker, but as a person, right? And I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about who people are representing in the legislature, what kind of interests they are representing. I think, to me, Johnny really understood the existing power dynamics in the legislature, knew how to navigate them well, and, and really understood, you know, that, you know, the people who've got the lobbyists don't need help, right? They don't need the help of the legislators carrying their water for them. I think that they, you know, they're they're plenty effective already. And I think it, like, in the whole context of this entire week where we've talked a lot about, you know, the separation of powers issues, we've had a hearing about the Oath Keepers, all this sort of stuff. I, I don't know. I think, it to me, like, Johnny and his contributions, his efforts to really opened the door for a lot of young people to get involved in politics in ways that, you know, those sort of opportunities weren't there, right? You know, the, there was sort of an existing system where, you know, the opportunities for, for people to get in and involved and, and kind of what those people could look like and who they could be, you know, was sort of predetermined for a long time. And, and I think Johnny did a, such a good job at, at 
you know, recognizing the opportunity and, and potential of a lot of young people. And I think that, to me, like, just speaks so much to the quality person that he was. And, you know, I think that, you know, if we could have more people like that, it would be so great. Because to me, it was, you know, it's creating opportunity and understanding how the system isn't working and, and working to address it. Yeah, I, I like that quote. I think that's a really good philosophy and a really good thing to to keep at heart. You know, I, I don't know how every legislator approaches it, but I think that when you step into that building, you have to really firm up some boundaries for yourself. You have to really decide who it is you want to be in that context and who you're there to work for. And I think that, you know, a lot of people lose track of, you know, like, are we here to, are we here to make some businesses some money or are we here to like represent the people of Alaska? And then, you know, you get into the complicated weeds that, you know, the business owners are people in Alaska and, right. and just a little slightly more influential. And, uh, it, it, you know, we, we need oil. We need the oil money to, to pay for things that I, it, it's a, it's, it's a slippery world up on the hill. And, um, and I think that having some good fundamental foundational philosophies to go back to is probably a really important part of that in terms of like good governance and, interesting things that came out of this week. I thought the state of the judiciary was really powerful and informative and thoughtful. I'd love to hear what, what you thought about it, and I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Um, Chief Justice uh, Daniel Winfrey, um, you know, this was his first state of the judiciary address, and um, it felt I mean, not in a bad way, but it felt kind of pedestrian. It felt like just like a guy getting up there to talk about his experiences in Alaska. And this is his first address, but also probably his last because he's um, going to have to retire because of his age. I mean, I think that I think that the pedestrian nature of it is like what was so charming about it, because um, so, yeah, he's the first Alaska born Supreme Court justice to deliver a state of the state, state of the judiciary. He did it on the 50th anniversary of the first uh, state of the judiciary. And he was able to reflect about like how he was a teenager when that thing was going on and, yeah. and how and he had this really kind of interesting sort of look at, you know, the turmoil, sort of political, social turmoil that was going on um, in the 70s and and how it felt, you know, like the world was kind of ending in a lot of ways. You know, it's just sort of this wild uncertainty and then and how it, you know, how it feels like the same thing today. Right. And I think it, it was nice because his overarching message wasn't, you know, this is how we gonna, we're going to branch all our differences or this, you know, wasn't this sort of like call to unity in so much as it was like an appreciation and call to defend the rules of the game. And I think, it, you know, he had this line, you know, it's like Alaska still stands. And it's talking about how, you know, we've had all kinds of governors and he's you know and he's seen them all he's lived through them all he's had all lived through all kinds of governors all kinds of legislatures all kinds of judiciaries and sort of the 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 key theme is that we've gotten through it all you know through great sort of key foundational elements of the separation of powers that we have a legislature that makes the laws makes the budget a, a executive that you know executes the laws and and a judiciary that you know 
plate, you know, calls the rules and ball, you know, calls the balls and strikes, right? And that that way he framed the judiciary versus the legislative branch was really good. You know, he talked about how the judiciary's job is to sort of remove their opinion from the process and to just sort of be objective, like a- answering questions as they relate to the rules that are written. Um, you know, for me, I, I actually didn't like the Alaska still stands part of his speech. It, it, that was the biggest turnoff to me was when he said, Alaska, oh, really? yeah, when he said Alaska still stands to me, I felt like people are going to hear that and they're going to, it's going to take away from them the, the, the weight and burden of participation. You know, like, look, all this bad stuff has happened before, but Alaska's still here, so you don't need to worry about anything. And that's not what he was saying, but I I worry that that's what people will hear. And I think that, you know, Alaska still stands, I think, because of the hard, uh, you know, the, yeah. the quiet and hard work of people like those in the judiciary branch, you know, who... They're, they're unable to get p- political. They're unable to, you know, they're not having podcast chats with their buddy who's a journalist because <laughs> they can't, you know, they shouldn't. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of uh, opinionated Alaskans out there who bite their tongue and do the hard work of holding this all together. And so, you know, if Alaska still stands, it's because of all those people over all those years who yeah. do the work of making it stand. And I think that the, the, my biggest fear is that is that like you hear some something like Alaska still stands and it sounds like propaganda and it sounds like <laughs> like don't sweat it guys Alaska's gonna I mean, be just fine you know like, yeah I mean I think yeah I think it, it is you know it's difficult to uh, maybe the the state of the judiciary you know it's aimed at the legislature right yeah. and I think maybe it's difficult to you know see the uh, the difference impact different impacts on different audiences, but you know I think the the contained in that message of Alaska still stands is Alaska might not still stand right because you know it's yes. it, important and I think it he didn't really hit it directly, but you know you look at over the last three years with Dunleavy, you know it's been a pretty like heated battle between the judiciary and the political influences to it you know affect it right, and I think. Um, so, you know, former Chief Justice Joel Bolger, you know, was pretty heated with it. You know, he was pretty clear about, you know, the importance of defending the judiciary against political influence. And yeah. I think, you know, uh, Chief Justice Winfrey talked about that, too. He says, you know, as soon as the judiciary is ruling because of who the plaintiffs are, then the rule of law is gone. Right. The the basis of our sort of democracy is undermined in that. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that. To me, I think I guess maybe because I am, you know, steeped in these issues and, and the the kind of constant erosion, constant erosion of the separation of powers. You know, we have a governor who vetoed the court system's funding because he didn't like one of the rulings, like, and and that became, you know, that beca- rightly became a uh, plank of the the recall effort. It rightly spawned its own lawsuit that resulted in, you know. A ruling that, yeah, as an unconstitutional infringement of separation of powers. That's interesting that you bring that up because, like, that kind of happened this week too, right? Right. So in Senate Finance, Stedman was questioning Neil Steininger, who's, um, you know, was kind of grown in the Donna Ardwin petri dish over there, right? He sort of <laughs> stepped into her shoes. He basically went up and got grilled by Stedman and. Uh, over legislative per diem, over the veto of the legislative per diem, and basically said, yeah, we did that as a punitive thing. 
yeah, because so, we didn't like what you guys were doing, which is exactly what what they went to court for and lost over in in the in the case of the judiciary branch. So the yeah. executive branch is overstepping its power. Like again, I don't know that this will result in any kind of a lawsuit or anything, but it's like if the legislature wanted to, it's teed up for it. But I don't there's I don't see any produ- anything productive coming out of it aside from making Dunleavy look bad again. But I know it was a really interesting thing. I mean, I think so. Is it? This is all in the context of the supplemental budget that is re- proposing to return to the legislature. I think it's one point nine million dollars that was vetoed for their their per diem out of the budget. Um, it was interesting because um, in in the budget veto documents, typically they're supposed to be like explanation of the veto. You know, it's, it's supposed to say there's other funds that will cover this, or there there's. Or, you know, we need to tighten our belts this is kind of the, the most sort of milk toast version of it. But there's got to be some sort of explanation in it. And in the budget documents, I think it said something along the lines of contained. It contained only the words veto of session per diem for legislators, which is not an explanation. It's just it's just a description. It's, it's what, it, what is. it is. Yeah. And then so it was so interesting because so that was really why I think this is really the first opportunity to ask, you know, why is this money in here? Why was it vetoed out? And I think it was, you know, the line was the veto was made effective. This is Steinlicker talking. This the veto was made effectively because there was no action on critical issues of state government, and the governor, you know, sought to draw attention to that through the veto. And so it's like, you know, the response is whole sort of back and forth about, you know, is this just the norm now? If the governor doesn't get his way, is he going to attack the budget of the legislature? And there was no like, oh no, we wouldn't do that again. There's no sort of like. Under, even under like seemingly understanding of just how like dark that is getting um and i think you know stedman and even uh senator donnie olson from golovin uh olson got uh, really, salty got really yeah. yeah i mean there's talking about you know sedman was talking about how you know this is a, a clear that this is an administration that where there are no rules there are no sideboards where 40 years of precedence means nothing um, Senator Donnie Olson talked about how it was almost Trumponian in style that, you know, slowly gravitating towards a more totalitarian perspective. Uh, you know, I think it was a chaos, iron rule attitude. Yeah, you and don't usually it, hear that from from Olson, which is uh, that yeah. was kind of like jumped out at me. I mean, I think it I think, you know, in the context, too, of the Senate veto or the sort of the judiciary vetoes and the state of the judiciary, too, like this is a really really i think important point and thread that's worth like really focusing on here which is you know this is an erosion of the fundamentals powers of democracy and it's sort of you know it it's it's this idea among dunleavy among i think the really sort of far right elements of our current political situation where like anything is okay as long as it's in service of me you know, as long as it's in service of our side, our political priorities, everything's okay. And it, it's this creation too of of really radical um, justifications, this sort of alternate reality of where things stand. And I think it's like really concerning. I think kind of pulling all this stuff together, I think it, there's a good question of you know, will Alaska still stand after all of this, right? Because you know, we've, we have I've seen other people talk about it too. Is that you know the way that Dunleavy, I think, you know, other, you know, Trump to an extent, you know, even brought, you know, Mayor Bronson in Anchorage to another extent. There's sort of this idea that that the executive is almost a king, 
you know, that they should be able to do whatever they want. And it's sort of like th that's almost the most offensive thing about Dunleavy to me is that it's not so much the, the basic budget elements of the budget, you know, like, right, we've been through governors who've cut a lot. We've been through legislators who've been radically socially conservative, right? We've been through all these sort of things, but I don't think there's any been anyone who's like necessarily like taken the table and flipped it, right? And and thrown the board across the room, right? <laughs> but that's like kind of what's going on here is that like, well, I didn't get my way, so therefore I'm going to burn it down. And I think that it's like a, I don't know, a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, it's also just testing the bounds of the system, right? So it's like, I'm going to yeah. just keep doing this stuff and get away with what I can get away with. And I'm going to push the line further and further. And so, you know, you, you do enough bad stuff and some of the bad stuff isn't so bad by comparison and you've moved the line over. And, yeah. you know, I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, you're talking about Bronson and Dunleavy and all these kind of like pseudo authoritarians, like the, the, it feels like a lot of that comes from this sort of like patriarchal top down, um, you know, like almost militaristic governance style of like, you've got to have like the alpha bro. It's a weird system. It like doesn't really acknowledge that we can make decisions together or in community or uh, that are sort of like mutually beneficial or that we can compromise. And, and it sort of necessitates having an, a, a powerful, important leader bro and if we don't have that, then society's failed. This transitions us really well into the hearing on the Oath Keepers. And it was honestly like this kind of the backdrop of all of this is that the House can't get the rules. Are you making a face? Well, I, it, it was such a it was such a weird hearing. It was like, a, you know, first of all, it was a battle to we talked about this last week. It was a battle to like move this into committee. And then it was just sort of this like dog and pony show thing of like well we can't find any oath keepers to talk so we're, i mean gonna, i thought it was actually really interesting i mean uh, so like the presentations were interesting and it's weird that they can't just have a conversation with eastman and say eastman tell us about this organization you're a part of and why it's not bad and yeah and you know they just can't have that conversation yeah okay setting aside the backdrop of it which is that they can't they don't have the votes to punish him and they don't really seem to have like a good grasp on what he is and so I think this, yeah. that that is what this hearing is really trying to get at, which is like, OK, so he is a member of the Oath Keepers. Most people like don't have a, a great understanding, a grasp of like what the Oath Keepers are or like how they operate. And honestly, so this hearing, they invited a member from the Anti-Defamation League. And then I think George Washington University's like a unit on extremist anti-terrorism sort of stuff. I thought it was a really like just on its own was a really interesting look at the Oath Keepers and, and really the, the kind of the sort of conspiratorial fringe militia movements and, and really how they've kind of grown and sort of changed and how, you know, the sort of common theme with them is that they're, you know, they have this warped view of reality, uh, sort of anti-government leanings that sort of seem to oddly sort of ebb and flow with whether or not there's a Republican in the White House, which is weird. Yeah, I don't know why that would be. Yeah. Um and and how they've like you know everything from you know the bundy ranch stuff to january 6th and, and talking about how this group has really accelerated in its violent rhetoric and and all these sort of things and i think the important sort of thread that to me i think actually ties with everything that we were just talking about about separation of powers and about you know, the, the governor's sort of tendencies to try to, you know, break the separation of powers is that this is really steeped, you know, the, the Oath Keepers, if you look out 
if you're looking outward in, it's a group that says that they're there to uphold the Constitution and to sort of drape themselves in patriotism, right? And the, yeah. the whole point of this presentation is that, they're yeah, they're upholding the Constitution. They're swearing, you know, the military oath of the Constitution, right? How could that be bad? Well, it, it's bad because they have a completely warped idea of what the Constitution is. That is built on conspiracy. That is built on, you know, it, it has ties to Waco. It has ties to, you know, all that sort of stuff. It made a, actually a pretty good distinction between the Oath Keepers that were, you know, hoarding guns, had hands on the shoulders going in, you know, were applying military tactics to January 6th, and Eastman. Eastman was not one of those guys. You know, he was not, you know, he's a, he's a member of this kind of large, loosely organized group. That kind of anyone can be a part of. That anyone can kind of be a part of. So it, it kind of, on the one hand, you know, it, it made clear how serious of a threat the Oath Keepers are. But at the same time, kind of made clear how not part of that Eastman is. Do you, and, you know, do you really do you believe that you you don't think that you know as a lifetime member of this organization you don't think he has some like secret forum name and he's in there like writing? I mean, I think he might be involved in it, right? You don't think, I mean, I think you don't think he's debating the rules within that organization and having you know, like <laughs> you know being as big a pain in ass to them as he is to the everyone in the I mean, legislature. Maybe. Maybe, right? And I think, but you know, I mean, he's just some just... secret forum bro, and he's on his Telegram yeah. WhatsApp chat, and he's probably super involved in instigating all this stuff, and he knows Maybe. that he's got an arm's arm's length from it. And you know, I in in my mind, he's probably gone to January sixth to just sort of watch this all unfold. You know, he doesn't. Yeah. He's not dumb enough to go in the building. He's. You know, as much as people want to cast him as a stupid person because he has stupid beliefs, like he is intelligent. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I, I think, but I I I think that there is some. I so I think what there's a couple different points here, which is that, you know, if we're trying to tie Eastman as, you know, one of these guys who was kitted out with you know an assault rifle looking hunting for. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi on he January wasn't, 6th. He wasn't one he of those wasn't. guys. He wasn't. He wasn't one of those, right? He yeah. wasn't. He, you know, there he, was a, he, he does choose to affiliate with this group, yeah, right? I mean, like... So that's the second it, point. Yeah. Is it problematic to be like... It seems like to not say, oh, man, I quit. I didn't realize they were going to try and, like, float in a barge load of guns for people to, like, shoot up the Capitol yeah. building. Oh, oh man, I don't want to be affiliated with that. He hasn't taken a, an inch no. back. You know, he hasn't taken a step back from that at all. Like, I, I mean, mean, I think if he was, if he was really smart, thing. I think he would He would say, oh, wow, okay, I'm going to disavow it. But then he, but you could do it with a wink and a nod. But that's the thing, right? That, I think, is is the other really important He knows he doesn't here. have to. He can hold yeah. his ground and get away with it, and it's no. disgusting. Yeah, but I think that's the really important other element of this. So we can we can look in, in horror at, at at this armed effort, you know, this, cons- this clear, pretty clear conspiracy to try to violently overthrow the government, right? There, there is yeah. So, there's so mounting evidence over about in this, that. Over in this column, this is a thing that's happening. But They're, yeah, and I think it, what what was important about it, and I think this is why I, I really liked the presentation, despite you know I guess the backdrop of it. But I, the reason I liked it is because it really got to the kind of underlying sort of philosophical and worldview of these groups, and it's not, yeah. and it, it isn't unique to the oath keepers right and there was it was sort of this funny time where there was they were asking well what do, what do the oath keepers swear an oath to and it was almost this God. like this this the most sort of like peak legislature <laughs> like 
sort of you know yeah, pe- pedantry whataboutism like well do they are they actually you know do it and it's like the the guy i was trying to say like also like the oath keepers is kind of like they're not there's not like a clear oh well, they, they're this, just not like this... all meeting up and like putting their hand on a bible and swearing an oath to something like that's kind of a like a, a misnomer almost well but, i think they were hoping that it was like we swear an oath to destroy america you're like oh yeah. that makes it easy yeah, yeah. And, but, but, it's, but i think it's it's more really subtle. important yeah, what's really important is to understand that the kind of the the flower bed or where the garden that all these ideas have been planted in has been this like carefully cultivated uh, world of conspiracy about you know a tyrannical secret government that is out to get you that is that the, the idea is that they the government is constantly and intentionally violating the constitution at every step of the way and that we are going to somehow hold them up you know hold them accountable right and we will do it by force if necessary and and they talk about you know there's there's the other element there's like this three percenters group which eastman was also a member of of their facebook group at one point um the three percenters it's like another radical militia group the idea there is referencing this i this concept that only three percent of americans uh rose up in 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 opposition to the british and therefore the three the percent of them now will will do it again and i think that worldview is is really like kind of scary and, and and the oath keepers you know specifically are targeting and going after you know members of the military police officers first responders with this idea that you know when the day comes and and, and biden or whoever is going to tell you to to kill all the americans will you will you won't you'll refuse their order but then you know the, it, then they then these groups are also for some reason showing up at black lives matters protests to protect property right like and and to kill you know or and to harass and you know and intimidate other people and it's you know kenosha Citizens was like an of offshoot United of that States. you know yeah 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 and i think you know i i think the thing that you're driving at here is that there you're creating an organization that says we believe in the constitution and we believe in our right to interpret it the way that we want and to oppose anyone who interprets it differently. And it almost becomes like this weird religious cult. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's an, it's a justification for authoritarianism. It's it's exactly, that's exactly what it is. It's a justification to, yeah, to use violence and to use intimidation to do whatever you want to do. And as soon as, as soon as the constitution becomes fungible, as soon as you're like, well, the courts don't matter. It's just what we think and what our guns think. Then, I mean, it's the same executive branch problem of now you have one branch of government and there's no checks and balances. And it's just whoever has the biggest gun and biggest army. And that's right. I mean, yeah. And I think that's, that I think is exactly right. It's a, it's building a permission structure to basically burn it down. And I think, you know, you look at, they they were referencing uh, the the group that wanted to go get uh, the, the Minnesota governor Gretchen Whitmer right um, yeah they were going to kidnap gonna... her and set her adrift on the Great Lakes or or yeah, murder yeah. her on live television yeah and I think and and I think what's really important to keep in mind here and and what they brought up at the hearing too is that these are a lot of people who are like fully brainwashed into this you know that and where you get into the cult talk about it um, is important because. You know, if you truly believe that the that the that the government was going to be using co- the COVID nineteen vaccination 
as the next Holocaust, you know, to kill millions and millions of people, it, all of a sudden you, that's a justification for violence, right? Because you are standing up against this great evil, but it's an invented evil. It's a imagined evil. And that to me is what comes around with Eastman. He's feeding into this worldview, right? He's feeding into it. He maybe he doesn't ever pick up arms. It maybe you know, his writing He's stoking the fire. It is building a power structure or building a structure that justifies violence. You know, I I, I listened to a, a, the introduction of uh, Dan Fagan on one of his shows and some of the words there, you know, are the same kind of themes that we see in the Oath Keepers that that, that led to those groups of of individuals at January 6 doing what they did because you know there's stuff words like the demonic anchorage daily news right and how could you you know they're demonic you know, how could you possibly you know how you know that of course they're evil right and you know, the cold civil war right is another phrase that, that i heard used and i think those sort of things I i've used that phrase before <laughs> yeah but those are sort of things that like i think are 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 you know that sort of language and ideas you know set the stage for for to justify these actions you know and it might not be you know an armed militia group attacking the capital it might be you know a constitutional convention that that you know removes the independent the political independence of the judiciary or or that you know empowers the governor to do whatever he wants right and i think it, it what it does is it sets the stage to not just undermine the foundational ideas of democracy, but it also, you know, it, it invites the door to authoritarianism with it, where, you know, I think that the end result of a lot of this stuff is that, you know, we'll do away with the courts and we'll just have a tribunal of, you know, armed guys deciding whether or not Gretchen Whitmer, you know, was was right to implement COVID, you know, public health policies, right? And yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like we agree on this, and I feel like we're just going to go around and around and yeah. around, and we're not really like <laughs> concluding any, we're not making any like great strides here. I just try to scare everybody. I want everybody to be scared about it yeah. because well, they I should, feel like should, everyone's they not worried scared. About it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You don't want a bunch of people that are in a weird militia making decisions for the rest of us, and so. Yeah, and you know, it's, yeah, and it's so don't it's, don't vote for that constitutional convention is my my takeaway. <laughs> All right, well, we'll leave it at that. And um, you know, in in terms of executive overreach that we're talking about, like in more concrete terms in Alaska, there was a really interesting um, op-ed that uh, was written by uh, Jonna Lindemuth, a former attorney general for the state of Alaska, and uh, it felt like it was just a it felt like it was an instruction manual and it just sort of laid out the case for why in, in the API case, the firing of the psychiatrists uh, that Dunleavy recently lost, why he and Tuckerman Babcock should be on the hook for that money and why the legislature shouldn't pay it. And, um, and it was just, it was like a bullet pointed list of this is why the legislature shouldn't pay $500,000 to cover up the governor's legal mistakes and why the current attorney general shouldn't have put that on the table and what should be done about it. And I think that, um, you know, if you're in the Dunleavy orbit and you read that op-ed, it's probably not feeling great today. It was, um, it, it, it was, it, it felt like it had teeth. Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, so this came up actually during the here the Senate Finance Committee's hearing where they talked about the 
um, per diem veto, they were mentioning too, you know, that like, hey, don't you guys have some settlements that aren't in here? Because they had a settlement in there for, I think, some uh, AC, another ACLU case, and I think the Recall Dunleavy case, but they didn't have the money in there for this one. And I think that Senator Stedman kind of indicated that they might not be willing to take care of it for him. Interesting. You know, I think that was a really big question that was raised when we saw this settlement, right? That they're going to settle, it's a half million dollars, going to leave it on the state's tab. And we never really got like a clear explanation of why, why right. that was permissible, why that was a good idea. Um, I think, you and know, especially was considering sort of, that the courts said that this is so egregious that it should be Dun- Dunleavy's personal liability. This isn't like a new thing, right, for the governor. Like he's already had several ethics violations. He used campaign, state finances, state money to campaign against legislators he didn't like. Right. How many um, times has he violated the Constitution? You know, like, he, I love yeah. that. It's always the guys that, like, wrap themselves up in the Constitution that, like, wants to change it. He wants to, he's he's willing to violate it. He, and then at the same time, he's like, Constitution, Constitution, Constitution. And I it's, think that's it's, what it's sort of drape, Yeah, just like the Oath Keepers, he's draping himself <laughs> in constitutional, you know, patriotism. But it's a very specific idea of what the Constitution is, right? Yeah. And I think that's... It is such a weird, I think that's like, you know, I, I've been talking a little bit about lately about just like, how do we translate, you know, talking points, right, into real world stuff. And I think one of the big issues I think that people have with politicians is like this level of like rank hypocrisy with it. And I think like, it's frustrating to me to see stuff that that would have just set the right wing media ablaze, you know, if Walker had done it, or if anybody else had done it, but for them to to look at Dunleavy's actions and to have no, not even no problem with it, but to try to justify it, it to me is like, like deeply like frustrating and worrying. And you know, it's like, I just don't understand how they keep getting away with it though. Is this the problem, right? Is this, you know, is any of this going to be a huge, you know, sort of like a liability. problem for him this year? Yeah. And that's what I actually, I think, though, that's the other interesting point, though. So from listening to talk radio, right, for a little bit, is that just how unpopular Dunleavy really is there. I think yeah. it's kind of, we probably, you know, we, on the progressive sort of even mainstream side, probably don't have like a great understanding of that, just of how, how really fractured his base is mm-hmm. on it. You know, and I think that's actually, you know, it's, it's a product of ranked choice voting, right? That all of a sudden... You can viably challenge the governor from the right without it automatically being handing it over to whatever, you know, the enemy, right? Because before, there was always sort of a neat lining up behind the incumbent that happened because you couldn't, you didn't want to risk it, right? You didn't want to risk him looking weak or whatever going into it. But now we have a system where, yeah, you know, you can you can have a challenge on the right and it can be viable enough for it to be a problem all the way to general election day did, did you see like, did you see this washington post op-ed can alaska save democracy? oh yeah yeah like i mean i i i <laughs> it was it was something it was one of those things where i was like oh my god i was in, involved in this effort to change the way we vote and it might change the, the country and it might change the world and we, you know I, and then i had to like dial it back and be like okay we haven't even tried this thing out yet we can, like let's wait and see how it works like but but i think that there's this dawning um 
this dawning realization that these closed primaries are one of the biggest poisons to our democracy right now on, on a national level and that it's it's being used as a bludgeon to you know to basically just keep people in line it gives these very small minorities incredible power over who can and can't run for office and what they must adhere to. So it's interesting now to see it sort of dawning on the rest of the country that that what we just did in Alaska is a big deal. And uh, I hope I hope it is at least because we still yeah. haven't. We need uh, caveat, so caveat, caveat. caveat. Out, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think it's really interesting. You know, you look at at that, you look at, you know, the way that Dunleavy has suddenly changed his tune on a lot of things. Right. You know, there, there's areas where it's still deeply I mean, he problematic. Came out but he's with got an like this green energy policy. Bill. He came out with like yeah. we're going to be 80 percent renewable on the road system by 2045 or something. What was the 2040? I think 2040. Yeah, it's. I mean, that was not something I expected from uh, this governor. Yeah, and I think I like. I think that's a really. I don't. You know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm not about to like roll out the dunleavy yard sign here but like i do think that i mean i think someone brought up a point which is like you know if this is what pandering to the left looks like then fine like i'll take it you know like this if that's what you know if if pandering means he's going to support you know halfway reasonable policies like that you know isn't that isn't that away my friend yeah i think it's interesting too i think you know i think it's it's really interesting to look at just how the, they're approaching the session, how, you know, I think a lot of the legislature in the last three years, right, has been about, you know, opposing Dunleavy because you're right. He started off on this crazy foot where he was, you know, he wanted to gut education by 25% or he wanted to do all this sort of stuff that launched it, right? It was like $130 million he was going to cut the university. It eliminated the Alaska State Council. I mean, I, like there's a giant yeah. grocery list. The stuff that he did that in 2019 has been, I think, largely erased from our memory by the pandemic, but it was bananas. Yeah. And I think, like, it. I mean, that set a tone where I think, you know, it's going to be impossible for him to walk it back. But in the context of ranked choice voting, it forces politicians to not only kind of rethink how they are approaching things, but I kind of think it also forces like voters and, and sort of the political class or whatever you and I are to also <laughs> sort of rethink it too, because I think, right, it used to be a binary decision. And all of a sudden, right, you know, Dunleavy, if he comes out and he's, he's supporting a halfway decent environmental policy, like it becomes sort it becomes dif- more difficult to necessarily cast this like blanket dunleavy equals bad thing well, and i think that's like a good place to be in yeah and I, you know let's take that to something that's actually more tangible and that's the um you know lv gray jackson just announced mm-hmm. that she's going to be running for senate and so now uh, you know basically my only option was you know Lisa Murkowski or Kelly Chewbacca is what it felt like, right? And so, or the liber- there's a couple libertarians. Yeah, and I don't really know much <laughs> about them yet, and they and I might get to know more if they make it to the top four for for the election. But the but my options felt fairly limited, and you know now you get someone like LV Gray Jackson in, and it it changes the equation because I can still support Murkowski and Gray Jackson. I can support you know go to the governor's race. I can support Walker and Guerra. I can support you know the those are candidates that I find 
Um, and I don't know that I, I personally, I haven't made final decisions and I'm really eager to see what happens over the next several months as campaigns kind of roll out. But for me, it's nice to be able to feel like I don't have to like marry myself to any one candidate super early on, um, or, or get super invested, right? Like if something bad comes out about someone, I can be like, well, whatever, that's fine. I've got this other candidate that I like. And so, um, the, I, I'm just, uh, I'm I'm kind of I'm excited about it. I'm 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 glad to see, you know, LV Gray Jackson running for Senate <clears throat> feels like the first time that there's been an actual Democrat uh, running in quite a while and running with progressive uh, a progressive platform. You know, like she's mm-hmm. not trying to. She doesn't feel like so far, at least, she doesn't feel like she's trying to center herself. She came out of the gate with a very like I'm a pro-choice candidate. I'm here for mm-hmm. equity and equality and like it was i was like oh this is different this feels different than what we've had in the last you know 10 years well i think that's good too because i think you know i think if the system allows candidates to feel like they can just be themselves and and be more um genuine right because i think that's like that's almost like why we saw success with guys like trump is that they they at least to some people felt like they were genuine that they were straight talkers who were not you know, going to be trying to, you know, meld their message to whatever wins. And I think that's exactly what we've sort of seen with, you know, the previous candidates in Alaska. It felt like they were like just a windsock in some ways, you know, that they almost had no sort of like clear sort of things that they believed in. And therefore it was hard to believe in them. And I think, well, or you had people Elvis, that had like, to like mask their intention, you know, they had to yeah. like run, run as like an independent when they're actually a, a Democrat or run as a, right. You know, run as a Republican when they're actually an independent or whatever the thing is. I felt like people yeah. are having to like put on weird hats and like pretend they're like, here's my fake mustache. I'm this guy. <laughs> this is sort of my own high horse. But I think a lot of like progressive values get lost in that trying to like take the edge off of them. Right. I think you they get sort of sanded off because you don't want to be like upfront about what you're talking about. And therefore, it doesn't mean anything. Right. And I think what I really liked about LV's launch video is that it, it did sort of translate choice. You know, it was not just about, you know, the choice to have an abortion or, or have, a, have a pregnancy. It was about her own autonomy to be able to pursue work and to make decisions about her life. And I think those sort of things, like, translate much better than, you know, a guy talking about shooting a bear, right? I think that, mm-hmm. like, there's something in there that I think is really genuine and I think is really translatable. I don't know Elvie very well. Like I, um, she's kind of been my periphery, but I don't think that I've really followed a particular piece of policy or an issue or anything that she's been tied to. I know she had a, a, a long term on the Anchorage assembly. What do you, what do you, what can you tell me about her history? Cause I really feel like I need to kind of get up to speed. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with her history in Anchorage. I know she's pretty well liked among those circles. I think that she's kind of, you know, a straight, sort of one of the sort of straight talkers, sort of maybe a little, maybe blunt to the point where she's maybe hurt some feelings along the way. But I think that, I think that bluntness is, is needed. And I think that, um, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of her speeches on, in special orders on the floor about issues. I've heard her talk on some bills and I, I, I've always really liked it because, or liked a lot of her, her speeches and the way she approaches things. Because I, again, I, I, I think it translates well into real world issues. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I feel like this is sort of a good time to circle back around to Johnny Ellison. I think that the, mm-hmm. you know, I, you had some nice things to say about him earlier, and I think that the 
the thing that really sticks out for, to me is this article that came out after he had uh, retired from the legislature that was basically his coming out article. And it, and mm-hmm. it was like, it, and it, it, is, it even kind of kind of tiptoed around the edges, but it basically said that he was a, he was a gay man in Alaska at a time when that was not very acceptable. And he shied away from having relationships and from letting that be known. And he sort of sacrificed his personal life and his happiness for, well, I wouldn't, I don't know about happiness, but he sort of sacrificed his personal life for public service. And it was a little bit of a tragic article to read, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that he felt that he had to do that. Like it was a, it was a choice that he made, but it was, it was a, a terrible choice to feel like you have to make, you know, that you can't, you can't represent your community or you can't represent people you care about if you let this facet of your personality become known on like a broader scale. And it was, it was a really, um, it was really bittersweet. It was, it was both, Mm -hmm. it was both inspiring because he was willing to go so far for public service, but it was also just disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Nate Graham posted this thing that I, and I'd never heard the story before, but I loved seeing it that he had during the debate, you know, they, they added this piece to the constitution that, that yeah. says marriage must be between a man and a woman. And he was in the legislature at the time. And, and his amendment that he offered up was to basically put the whole 10 commandments into the, into the constitution. <laughs> and he made all the Republicans vote against it. It was, uh, it was a nice little, uh, poke in the eye i think and um it must have been at a time that it must have been heartbreaking for him to to see that pass and to see that you know become part of our our constitution it must have been yeah his colleagues you know these are people you know whether you know people have like these strong relationships connections and to see the these people not just vote against your position but vote against you yeah i think it it must have been yeah devastating i think that's that's sort of the tragic story of of johnny is that you know there's so much of good that he saw in others you know i think there's a lot of stories where he was encouraging young people to be who they are you know and and it was something that he didn't get to you know, take part in, in some ways. And I think that is unfortunate. I think, you know, it's important, I think, too, to kind of keep that, those sort of values in mind, right? Is that, like, you know, we talk about what politics and policy are. I think, you know, finding policies that allow people to be who they are, to be able to find opportunities who, you know, regardless of who they are, regardless, you know, of, of anything and and to have the sort of equal opportunities is is to to me is just something that is so hammered home with kind of all the memories i've seen of johnny this week is that you know these sort of political fights are almost sort of silly in context of you know bringing young you know bringing up people who don't have those opportunities and i think that is sort of you know what we like to tell ourselves about america and democracy is that it is this equal opportunity playing field. And, you know, at, at every single turn, we're told that, it, you know, we see evidence that it's not. Yeah. You know, I think that we have this idea of equity and opportunity that is just not reflected fully, right? And 
to see these efforts that try to attack it are really frustrating. I think, you know, uh, going back to the state of the judiciary with Chief Justice uh, Winfrey, you know, he closed with this really hopeful message, this reference to the Alaska Constitutional Convention's uh, resolution for children. And I, I it, to me, you know, it's like I look at that and I, you know, it's sort of this sort of, I think it kind of reflects your frustration with this idea that Alaska still stands because you look at this, we look at this resolution and you see ways where it's not, you know, it's not um, lived today, you know, where the promises made in this resolution weren't held in a lot of ways. And, you know, you look at this week, you know, I think there was a recent ruling that dismissed um, a bunch of young people's efforts to find, uh, you know, to add the right to a, a healthy environment to the Alaska Constitution. Uh, understanding of it and and you know people were scoffing at it oh this crazy idea that people should have clean water and a clean atmosphere Uh, so let's look at this resolution maybe it's a more positive note to end things on than to should we we just gripe about how terrible everything is yeah should we play the i think it's a great note to end on should we play the um maybe the clip from the actual state of the judiciary yeah from my early teenage years um, I dreamed I might someday be in a position to help make important decisions for Alaska. I'm one of the luckiest people around. I've been able to live my dream in what is for me the best job in the world. To all the young people out there who are listening, e- even some that might be in here, <laughs> here's a little known resolution from the Constitutional Convention delegates directed to Alaska's children which I love and have had hanging on the Supreme Court hallway wall in Fairbanks for years. We bequeath to you a state that will be glorious in her achievements, a homeland filled with opportunities for living, a land where you can worship and pray, a country where ambitions will be bright and real, and Alaska that will grow with you as you grow. We trust you. You are our future. We ask you to take tomorrow and dream. We know that you will see visions we do not see. We are certain that in capturing today for you, you can plan and build. Take our Constitution and study it. Work with it in your classroom. Understand its meaning and the facts within it. Help others to love and appreciate it. You are Alaska's children. I think I, I thought that was a really nice way to end it. It was so funny because I was so as he was giving this speech, I was typing in sections of it to Google and trying to find a reference to it. And it was exactly from the place I would have expected, right? So it was the minutes of a 2006 legislative hearing where Mr. Pat Race read the resolution into the record. <laughs> Uh, to, a, to probably a table of legislators who probably didn't really appreciate it. No, I think they. I think it was. I think it was taken in the spirit it was intended. The the um, that was part of the uh, that was 2006, right? That was part of um, mm. the Conference of Young Alaskans. Uh, was part of the 50th anniversary of the Constitutional Convention, and uh, I was on the steering committee for this group that was. It was kind of part of the Creating Alaska Project, which is a part of the University of Alaska. Um, and uh, you know people like Joe Hardenbrook and uh, Ian Aber and um, you know there were just a bunch of folks that were kind of involved in this gathering where we we 
put out a applications and we got 55 delegates from around the state, all young Alaskans, all, you know, like, I think it was like 16 to 20 something. And that we had them come together in Fairbanks and follow basically the format of the constitutional convention and just talk about state policy issues and, and learn about state policy issues. You know, we had uh, former governors, we had uh, constitutional convention members, people who wrote our constitution. Uh, we had, you know, Jack Coghill and Vic, uh, and Vic Fisher and Katie Hurley were all there and just hung out with the kids and talked to them about, you know, just, it was beautiful. And they came up with sort of their idea of what they, what they prioritized and, and what they were concerned with. And they brought that to the legislature and presented it. And, um, you know, I, I think maybe I, I was part of introducing it and maybe read that piece of the constitution, kind of tie it into the sort of our, you know, a little, give it a little more weight and history. And um, the interesting thing, like this organization conference of young Alaskans kind of existed um, ephemerally. It was part of this project. And um, three years later, we did it again as part of the 50th anniversary of statehood. And then three years later, 2012, um, it, the university had to kind of step back from it because the things that young people were saying were like too hot to handle. Like the legislature couldn't, couldn't like, they couldn't handle what young people wanted to say and valued. And they're like, they're like, we, we need, they need to be saying better stuff about oil or else we can't do this anymore. Yeah. And it was just like such a weird, such a weird thing, but it's um, that conference of young Alaskans. I'd love to see it sort of like supported institutionally and, revived and ongoing the uh in 2021 the alaska municipal league nils andreasen was part of of this um was this was part of our steering committee back when we were doing this in the early years and um so he's sort of the um he's sort of the shepherd of this thing now and so he's at the alaska municipal league and so they did like a municipal focused version of it and i guess it went really well um, you know, it was, it was a little tougher with, with pandemic restrictions and stuff, but, um, I'm hoping to see it continue and, and, uh, and sort of, uh, be a part of our discussion. Um, you know, interesting note, Jonathan Christ Tompkins and, uh, Tiffany Zulkowski, uh, are both, uh, people I met through the conference of young Alaskans cause they were young Alaskans who attended and it was really, mm-hmm. um, it's really cool to see them in leadership positions now. And, um, you know, many of the other people went on to do really important things, uh, in the state as well. And not necessarily in government, but like, you know, engineering and resource development and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. And it's nice to have this fundamental foundational tie to one another. And I think that it's, even though it was a few days, it was like this special thing and it meant a lot. Yeah. And I think that's like, to me, my takeaway from justice Winfrey's sort of closing with that was like, what a good man that is like what a good person to look at young people and see hope and opportunity and basically a chance to get it right you know yeah. to do it better than do it better than we have oh, please and I think, please do it better <laughs> and i think that's like i don't know i think that's a really like heartening place to be right now i i think um you know it's difficult it's really easy to feel like hopeless right to look at our political status quo right now and to see guys like joe manchin having a thumb on the on the on progress right on on efforts to really make things better and i think these efforts to to raise up young people to like you know justice winfrey talks about or as johnny else did is really important and i think is something that gives me a lot of hope 
about what's next. And I think, you know, and honestly gives me reason to be like, okay, well, maybe look out for young people that I can help. Along. Yeah. What kind of people can I help? And, and with my resources and my knowledge and, and help them along because they'll probably be doing it better than me before too long. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of energy there. And I think a lot of like good hope it's important to create those opportunities too like if you don't let the next generation know that they're valued they you know they don't have any reason to stick around you know i think that i mm-hmm. i think about why am i still in alaska and i think it's because of all the people over the years who made me feel important to the state and mm-hmm. who you know helped they you know i'm i'm bound i'm t- i'm tied to the state by all of the people who invested in me and i think I'm, that same here yeah and, totally and, yeah i came here as a 22 <laughs> year old who didn't know anything and you know i'm here and i'm here for good yeah you know well let's think on that some more we can yeah. figure out ways to prop up and support young got the got the gears rolling here which is a good place you know i think that's the we always want to end these on at least a we can spend an hour feeling miserable about the state of things and we can have five or ten minutes at the end where we're yeah feel a little hopeful about stuff you're we're allowed a little bit of hope at the end that's nice yeah as a treat all right as a treat yeah all right goodbye alaska goodbye So to Alaska's children, be concerned, be active, be involved in government. You too can be a governor, a legislator, or a judge, or a justice. Live your dreams and make Alaska an even better place.